Welcome back to another episode of Marvel News Desk, the official podcast of MCU Exchange and the best place to keep up with all the latest news, reviews, and speculation concerning the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, today it is just Rhiannon and I. Rhiannon is on Twitter as Brooklyn Wallace at Shot of Patron. I'm Caleb, and you can find me at Caleb A. Borchers. Um, also, later on when we do our Black Panther talk, we're going to have Michael T. Ford III with us. You can find him on Twitter at MTFIII. Obviously, MTF the third, but MTFIII is the uh, the handle. We are just going to jump right into our news. Got a few things to talk about before Black Panther, but we want to get to Black Panther as quick as possible. So there probably won't be too much talk here. Speaking of Black Panther, it's making a lot, a lot of money. Um, it's looking like the three-day total for the weekend will be like about 195 and the four-day weekend with President's Day is going to get to like 220, 230. Every time I look at it, it's it's going up. I mean, it's worse than a scale. It just keeps climbing and climbing and climbing. Um, I guess we're not surprised, right, Rhiannon? Like, it's just making lots of money and people keep coming to see it. Yeah, I compared it to Titanic earlier this week. Yeah, I just remember, I mean, and very few of our listeners probably do, but when Titanic came out, people, it just hit this weird nerve and people just went and saw it over and over and over. And I think that's what Black Panther is going to do. Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting because it has this big opening. And usually if you have a big opening, you have less of a multiplier, right? Because... Lots of people see it. There's a lot of pent up demand, but then people, you know, have seen it and they get out of their system. And so we usually have movies like Avengers or um, Age of Ultron that open really huge. Well, not Avengers. Avengers was another story. Age of Ultron opened really big. Civil War was kind of this way, opened huge, but you know, then only got about two and a quarter, two and a half time multiplier. The kind of I want to see this again and again stuff we're hearing makes me think that this is going to be a three, three and a half. And given what it's starting at, it's incredible. I mean, that's going to be a ton of money that they're bringing in. And so it's it really is as somebody who watches the box office stuff more than I should and thinks about those numbers too much. This is kind of defying box office physics. And it's really kind of incredible to see. So, uh, Kevin Feige has said that the voices for the Black Order are going to be some familiar voices that we've heard before. Um, I didn't ask you this ahead, Rhiannon. Is there any voice actor that you would love to see in uh, in Infinity War as one of these villains? No, I don't really have strong feelings on voice actors. If it's an actor I already know and I recognize their voice, that actually kind of takes me out of the moment because I'm like, that face and that voice doesn't match. Who is that? What's going on? So just, yeah, that's not a big deal to me. Yeah. There's a voice actor who does one of the, the, who does the main guard in Aladdin, like the guard that's always coming after Aladdin. Yeah. And he does a voice in Star Wars, um, rebels as well and it really bothers me because i'm like wait a minute why is a lot you know like it always takes me out every time i hear his voice but um i'd like to see mark hamill i think it'd be a fun way to bring mark hamill into a marvel movie since he's a very well-known voice actor as well so thor ragnarok is about to have a home release and we saw a clip of grandmaster living with team daryl um <laughs> do you like the team daryl shorts Rhiannon? would you would you buy the movie just for that I would not buy the movie just for that, but I will definitely watch the YouTube clip of it over and over and over. I love Team Daryl. And Grandmaster, I mean, Goldblum was being Goldblum fantastically. So we, There's more talk about a all-female Marvel movie. Uh, obviously, Black Panther has a lot of strong female characters, and so there was some more talk around the 10 anniversary stuff with Tessa Thompson as far as making real clear to Kevin Feige that they would like an all-female movie. I think we've talked about that um, some before. It would seem, however, between Wonder Woman and Black Panther, that maybe we're going to suddenly see a glut of movies here 
that have some non-traditional, not so white, not so guy casts now that maybe Hollywood is finally going to figure out that people will pay to see movies like that. That's my guess. And I think we're going to see some horrible, I mean, not within Marvel. I mean, I think Marvel is going to do it very well. Um, You know, I think, I think throughout the entertainment industry, we're going to see some awful attempts while they try to figure out how to create these movies. Yeah, I think there's a truth that Hollywood always takes the wrong lesson from both success and failure. Yeah. And so instead of, hey, let's find women or African-Americans or some other, you know, ethnic group and let's give them an opportunity to tell a story that's authentically theirs. Instead of that story, I'm sure what many execs probably at places like Sony are like, oh, we've got to do lots of black movies now. You know, like, that's just the message they're going to take. And so it'll be interesting to see how that develops. But it is nice that it should speed up how often that we're going to see things like Black Panther or Wonder Woman, um, which is a good thing, I think. Uh, let's make this the last bit of news because we want to talk about Black Panther. Um, there was an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. poster, um, and it's kind of hard to tell. It's celebrating the 100th episode. Oh, Okay. There's been a series of trailers or of of posters, yeah, that commemorate the different seasons of Agents of Shield. When I saw this first one, I thought they were bringing back Hive for the 100th episode, and I was like, "No, please don't!" But it looks like they're just commemorative, huh? Yeah, and I think we even because we we put out on Twitter like one of those articles. It was you know the third season or something like this. The third season. And what it was, was they had a poster for the third season. Because I was like, they're not on their third season. But they did one for like every season. Yeah, it's kind of fun to look back at it, you know, and see kind of the things. I I forget things are in. I don't know. I saw Lincoln and was kind of happy and kind of sad all at the same time, you know. Aww. <laughs> um. I think that does it. I don't think there's any other major news. Uh, oh, Punisher season two is beginning production. Yeah. I think we knew that. Yeah, they're moving fast on this one. It feels like I, I, you know, they're getting into that groove where they where they go straight from one to the next. So my guess is, as soon as they finish filming Daredevil or Iron Fist, they'll move right into Punisher. All right, it's time for us to talk about Black Panther. At long last, the movie is here. We've all seen it. Um, We are excited to kind of give our review of it. So I wanted to start today with our guest. Um, Michael, go ahead and tell us. um, Let's just start with like a general review. How did you feel the movie was? Did you enjoy it? Uh, Just how did you feel about Black Panther? Oh, I loved it. Um, I've seen it more than once by now. So the first I was. Uh, telling some friends that the first time I did love it, but I was, I was so anxious and so nervous. My expectations were so high that I was clenched for the entire movie, worried that, it, that something was going to happen to ruin how much I was enjoying it. And after that, I got that out of the way, I was able to truly appreciate how great it was and all the good things and all of the moments that, that uh, I thought took it out of the range of, sort of your general good Marvel movie, even your general great Marvel movie, and, and put it in the kind of transcending comic movie range. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that when I, when I really think about it, I feel like only Winter Soldier and First Guardians are in that territory of where you can have someone who's not interested in comic characters or comic books at all and say, you know what, you just can watch this movie and love it. Yeah, I had a friend or two on Facebook that has already said something like, I hate comic book movies, but Black Panther's awesome. And I think that's right. huge for Marvel to see that happen, you know? Well, and that's that's something I mentioned in a couple of places, but noticed it, at least at the one showing that I did, a bunch of people left before the after credits. So they're hitting an audience. Yeah, I had to, I had to snag some people at, at my screener a couple of nights ago. I was like, no, there's more. <laughs> so that, that, that definitely bodes well for the box office because you're dealing with first-timers who aren't familiar with the whole Marvel way. 
and maybe they made some new friends. Yeah, I don't know if it was this movie or what, but um, when we went into our theater, the guy um, there was an usher to kind of help us find our seats because we did IMAX and it was reserved seating. And as he took it, he's like, go up to the right and you're going to be in the middle, row J, and make sure you stay for the two post-credit scenes. Like, that was like being told oh, nice. to us as we came in. It was pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. Rhiannon, generally, how did you find the uh, movie? I felt, I mean, I enjoyed it, definitely. And I felt, I have, I'm just going to several people as, I had a feeling at some point during the movie that this is, this must have been what it was like when people first saw Star Wars. That it was the beginning of something iconic, completely original, just like a whole new world, and and big, which it's already proving to be. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with what Mike said, and that it totally did not feel like a Marvel movie, or or you know, it felt sort of outside or alone in the Marvel universe, and um, but it just felt new. Yeah, I was really impressed. A lot of the world building stuff, like I. I don't think I expected Wakanda to be such a deep place. Like they kind of brought us in and they show us the capital city and I'm like, Oh wow, that's, that's really cool. And then they start to show us like Shuri's lab and some of the vibranium stuff. And I'm like, Oh, that's cool. And then we see the necropolis and then we see the falls and then we go to like Mbaku's mountain region. And each time there was a new setting I was like, this world is richer and fuller and bigger than I expected it to be. And it was just kind of fun to keep seeing new places. And it made me think, like, I don't know, it could be easy to think that the Marvel Universe was kind of finished, that we've seen it all, we've seen all the corners. And this movie was just like, nope, we have got so many more places to go, so many more things to see. And just like the set design and stuff was fantastic. And it was it was also kind of over the top, and not in a bad way, but like it was fantastic places. It wasn't just like oh, here's a you know a couple of skyscrapers. Like um, the way that they use sculpture and like that giant gorilla sculpture at Mbaku's palace, I thought was so. It's like fun and uh, very comic book esque, you know. And they were willing to go to those places, right. and it didn't hurt the the feel of the movie. Yeah, one thing that I will say was a slight knock. I don't which is something that I'll need to pay a little bit more close attention to the next time I see the movie, is um, the sense of, that sense of scale, it being a full country rather than kind of your, your old classical city-state, you know, where there's one main city and then sort of smaller, um, you know, estates in the outskirts. I, I mean, maybe I'm a little spoiled because, I mean, you know, in reading the Ta-Nehisi Coates um, Black Panther comic, they, there's a map that he puts in to every issue of the if it's a country of Wakanda and the major cities and the areas, and it helps you to realize that you know you're covering you know hundreds of miles more so than just you know one city at its outskirts. Yeah, and I'm I'm excited to see. I think I think if they give you know if Coogler stays on, I could see them going to other cities and seeing other facets. Like, I think we got a little bit of a hint of it in the fact that there was kind of the different tribes and they all had their own like colors and garments and all that kind of stuff that kind of suggested the world was fuller than, than even what we got to see. Yeah, I agree with that. I love the costume design and the, and you know, unfortunately I'm not as well read and in different uh, African tribal traditions, but I was, I knew enough to know that each of the tribes kind of represented different facets, um, style and different, um, you know, from the, the, I forgot the term for, for the lip, the lip obtrusion. And, um, and then also the, the facial tattoos in um, the river tribe, you know, every, every, every tribe kind of had its, both its sort of color scheme as well as costuming scheme that, you know, also helped to build out the idea that even though this was an exotic country, it was an exotic country that also had its own groups within it. And it wasn't a monoculture. Uh, let's talk a little bit about characters. I mean, this really was an ensemble movie, um, more than some of the other solo movies have been. Um, there's lots of different characters that were added into the world. I guess uh, for each of you guys... 
uh, just give us one character that you loved in this movie and why you thought they were awesome, you know? Well, I, I mean, I, I didn't know anything about Shuri before we went into this. And so she was definitely, when she first started, I was like, oh, it's the bratty little sister that just, you know, is always there for a little bit of snark. And she turned out to be so much more than that. Um, they really just sort of blew that characteristic out of the water. I mean, yes, she was the snarky little sister, but she was also the Tony Stark of this universe. And, yeah, I love... Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I loved how much of a millennial Shuri was, and I wasn't prepared for it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It was like she, you know, at first, yeah, just on the surface, she was a little girl that didn't want to do things, and then, like, she turned out to be way on top of everything so uh yeah she just really stood out to me yeah that's that was really the one that came to my mind i think she's really the star of this in a lot of ways um i guess i'll mention um i really enjoyed mbaku and kind of his role mbaku (laughs) like he just he was you know he had this thing where he's kind of the villain and then he kind of comes in and then he had like a humor that I wasn't expecting and was really kind of enjoyable. And I think the thing that's really great about him is that I can see him developing. Like I can see this being a character that can shift back and forth. I think some people were disappointed that maybe he was lost as a potential villain, but I could see situations like with Killmonger where he will help T'Challa because he sees like a foreign influence coming into their nation. But then, you know, Black Panther 2, if his friendship with Cap and Bucky somehow causes trouble for Wakanda, I could see him totally flipping to the other side and being like, I was with you against the outsider, but now that you and your buddies are causing trouble for our country, I'm not with you anymore. And I could see him sort of having that allegiance that moves back and forth that will allow him to be a protagonist or antagonist based on what they need in that universe, you know? Definitely. And he oozed charisma. Um, I'm not familiar that much with Winston Duke's uh, other work, but he, you know, the camera loved him and he commanded every scene that he was in. And um, someone made the joke about uh, I don't know how, if you guys watch Game of Thrones about him being king of the north. And once they said that, I kind of couldn't couldn't unsee it, you know, that he's got his kingdom, but he he just doesn't believe in bowing to the to the other king. And and I and like you said, I think from a standpoint, I don't think I think he crossed the Rubicon where he can't be a pure villain, but he can definitely be an antagonist because he has something that he stands for that he's not willing to compromise on. So what about you, Michael? Who, who would you put as your, uh, your favorite, you know, character that we haven't talked about so far? Well, I guess I'll pick Okoye. Um, yeah, I didn't really have a high expectation. You know, I know that Denai Guerrero is a good actress, but I didn't think they would give her as much to work with as they did. Um, you know, I didn't expect her to have a romance. I didn't expect her to have such showcased uh, action sequences where, you know, she we forget at times that she doesn't have superpowers, <laughs> you know, because of the things that she's doing that are comparable to what T'Challa's doing. Yeah, and I really liked how they developed, um, developed the Dora Milaje in this movie as far as I feel like they were a little more at the front than say um, where they were in say Christopher priest run. Oh, definitely further than Christopher. Priest. Yeah. But they weren't as antagonistic as they often are in, in Coates run. I feel like Kugler right. kind of made his own version, you know? Well, I think, I think what Kugler did is he, he laid the foundation for if they ever do want to go the direction of the Coates's run, you know, it's right there for them. And I also think that he made them, you know, much by, by having a Koye out in front. And, you know, you got this sense 
that she's so much more experienced than T'Challa is that, you know, she could be a leader in her own right. And, you know, she has the Dora Milaje on her side who, you know, who are willing to, um, you know, willing to go where she goes. You know, I think, I think there was a pivotal scene where Nakia tried to get her to leave. And I think another actress could have played it in a different kind of way, but Okoye played it as, you know, this is my duty. You know, you may have the luxury as, as a queen or as a, you know, a queen consort, you know, to go your own way. Uh, but I stand for the state, you know, I, you know, what Wakanda means, you know, is, is filtered through me, you know, and whoever sits on the throne, whatever the, the transition of power might be, the Dora Milaje is, is sort of at a higher level of, of a calling. And, you know, I guess that resonated for me for Okoye to sort of create her own heroic journey. Yeah, and I think it's an important layer because, um, I don't know, we're living in a time where some of our leaders are very disappointing to us. And it's really, like, easy to feel like you should never, ever, like, help out or be part of something that you don't agree with. But like that's an interesting tension that is a reality in society. Like if you're if you're a Secret Service member, you have to protect the president no matter how much you like them or not, you know, or the idea of taking orders from a general. And I think that's an interesting dynamic to force some of the characters into. Exactly. And and then, you know, she still when the time came for her to stand on the site, the right side, she did that, too. You know, so she didn't go all the way to the. I'm just following orders place that we, we all feel squicky about, you know, she was in the place of this is the state. This is what holds the country together. And, you know, we can't just have a coup. We can't just break down, you know, there's nothing, there'd be nothing to save if we did that. So let's talk a little bit about Killmonger and uh, as a villain, I mean, obviously Michael B. Jordan is a significant presence in this movie. Um, I mean, as far as Disney villain, Disney villains, as far as Marvel villains go, um, is Killmonger one of your favorites? Like, how did you feel Michael B. Jordan did in that place that's been so tricky for so many other actors? So, so I have complicated feelings about Killmonger, the comic character. Um, I've always felt that he's been badly drawn um, in terms of what his motivations are almost cartoonishly so. And I like the layers both in how the character was written and how the character was performed and, you know, adding the element of him being of royal blood and, but being um, not just Americanized, but exposed to uh, oppression and militants uh, in, you know, black America and, you know, the black diaspora and, feeling like not just that that he was entitled to um, Wakandan birthright, but that his people, that black people all around the world were, you know, had their backs turned on them by this, this culture that was isolationist. You know, by giving him that additional piece of motivation, even though he was still evil, it gave him a cause, a righteousness that the character in the comics tends to lack. The character in the comics is just kind of your standard uh, Americanized, I just want to turn my back on Wakandan tradition, um, which, you know, I mean, sometimes sometimes it works, but most of the time it doesn't. <laughs> um, I thought the combination of, again, what he stood for and how Michael B. Jordan, you know, he, he does so much acting with his eyes and so much pain behind um, his line delivery and his scene delivery, even when he's being menacing, you can kind of see that the menace is, is almost like a mask to hide pain. I think there's very little to say after all of that that Mike just went through. Um, he, you know, I've been thinking on him and I actually went back and watched Creed yesterday and he is just a very quiet, that point of him acting with his eyes rather than being like, 
just out there. It, it's a much more subtle act that he does. And it was such a complex villain. It was complex for the audience, but for him, it was not complex. He was a very, I mean, he had a very good point. He understood it. There was no doubt in his mind about what he was going with. And um, I, I enjoyed, I find myself days after seeing it, sitting here going, but was he really a bad guy? Like, was he really? I mean, he's definitely a bad guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was interested in. I almost talked to you about this on Facebook, Rhiannon, but I figured I'd save it for the podcast. Um, you'd kind of mentioned this, like online, like it's a villain that you know some people might might side with. I mean, I don't, I didn't quite see it that way. In as much as, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't want to bring this all down, but like we had a. Oh, it's fine. A, no, it's fine. I mean, I think I know where you're going. Yeah. We, we yeah, had a a major shooting in our country this week, and we're having a conversation about what kind of weapons should be available in to the public. And then the villain of this movie is a guy that wants to put even more lethal weapons into the hands of thousands of people across the world. And so to me, right. I'm not confused about Killmonger. I don't like him because he's wanting to arm the world in a time when what we need is less but, weapons. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I don't but, know, maybe this will get us hate Caleb, mail, but the Caleb, his name is Killmonger. It's perfect <laughs> <laughs> for him. Violence is the answer, right? You know? And I think that that's the, that's what makes him such a compelling villain that, He's seen violence all around him. He's seen oppression, oppression all around him. He's studied history. He knows that there have been violent revolutions. There have been, you know, that, that a lot has happened in the world. A lot of social change is tied to death and suffering. So he's embraced it wholeheartedly. You know, even against, I think, so, so at the end, let's talk about the end. Let's jump to the end and then go back. So his death, said so much about the guy that he was and the guy that he could have been. Uh, he was told about this wondrous place, Wakanda, and that stood in such stark contrast to the world that he had seen. And he, even as he's dying and watching Wakanda, watching the sunset on Wakanda, the beautiful sunset that his father told him about, he, it's still a fairy tale to him. It's still something that his father told him when he was a child to make him happy. But everything in his life up until that point was not that. And he would rather die than take another breath, um, you know, in this world where, where he's not free and, you know, in his mind, you know, his people are not free. So, you know, I mean, again, I, I do think he's a villain. I think it was really important to show that he doesn't have respect for uh, women. He doesn't have respect for tradition. He only respects violence. And even though it comes from a place of pain, it's important to call that out as, as villainy. But it's a tragic villainy more so than... Um, you know, more so than sort of existential villainy, like a Thanos or something like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I felt like I, I felt like his motivations were compelling, but ultimately the place that it takes him is not a place that I want to go, you know? And so I felt like they did a really great job. That's what makes him an awesome villain within the MCU, I think. And it's a such, you know, it's such a shame that we're, we're not going to get him again. Well, so I was going to ask that question. Do you think that's a mistake that we're not going to see him again? Or was it required for him to, you know, like his death is a big part of people how are evaluating that role. Would we have felt the same yeah. way about this villain if he hadn't have died the way he did? Um, probably not. But, you know, obviously there's that other narrative that, that uh, Marvel kills off its best villains. <laughs> right. Um, excuse me, but I, I guess, I mean, as, as a comic reader, 
I'm very interested in seeing how this performance influences the way that the Killmonger character will be written in the books, you know, because Ta-Nehisi hasn't touched him yet. And, you know, I'm hoping that seeing that and the complexity that's brought to the, the character going forward in the, in the, in the text will, will, will expand the way that people think about Killmonger and his influence, you know, in, in terms of what, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to explain, but I, anyone can come back. This is comic books after all, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I liked his arc and I did feel like he had to die, but I, I'm going to miss him anyway. And I feel like, I don't know, they could maybe get away with him coming back in the future and he's like in Shuri's lab and she's healed him. And he's like, I told you to let me die. And T'Challa was like, yeah, I decided I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> you know, like whatever. Oh, well, well, so, so my head canon, you know, since I do that kind of stuff, my head canon was that he would have kind of his people who knew about him and became kind of followers of Killmonger who tried to bring him back. Oh, okay. You know, they exhumed his body and, you know, and tried to bring him back, you know, kind of like, kind of like how in X-Men comics, there are people who love Magneto even beyond the point that Magneto wants to go. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about Claw. I think we got a little bit of a misdirect with him. Are you guys glad that we got only as much as we did or did he go too soon? He probably went when he needed to go for Killmonger to truly level up. I thought that what we got out of Claw was great. Um, and he's another one that I'm going to miss <laughs> because he was just fun. He seemed to be having fun in his villainy. And, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's almost cartoonish in his, in his villainy, but, in a, you know, not in a way that took me out of the movie. I love the part. I love the part about the uh, SoundCloud link. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, Rhiannon, did you enjoy um, Andy Circus in this? Yeah, I mean, I really, I, I, I liked Claw. I thought he, I mean, to me, he was just your villainy villain. Um, he had, I don't know, he was just a very generic bad guy. Um, not one that I would probably remember long term, like if it was making my list of Marvel villains. It, which, granted, because you guys, of course, you know, every time the movie there's been lots of talk of Marvel villains the past week. I seriously forgot who half of these guys are like beyond Loki and Zemo and um, Thanos, you know, some of the big ones. I just do not remember the Marvel villains. And I think claw will just fall down in the hole for me. Like he was somebody that they were up against, but not really. I mean, it was just sort of the decoy to get Killmonger in there. Right. And I did find myself wondering, like, this guy's a little bit on balance. How did he stay ahead of the Black Panther for 30 years? He seems like he seems like somewhere along the line, he would have gotten caught. You did get the sense from Wakabi that maybe it's that T'Chaka just didn't care enough to go get him. You know, like there was kind of that tension there. Yeah, but I mean, you know, can you really trust Wakabi? That's true. No, no, you cannot. You cannot trust him. <laughs> I have this um, this theory that I've come up with based on the way Andy Serkis was in Age of Ultron, and it seemed like they were really laying the groundwork for Claw. I think that the original plan was for this movie to be a little bit simpler, more vanilla story of Claw trying to steal Vibranium and Black Panther stopping him. And then they signed Ryan Coogler and he came in with a pitch that was very Killmonger heavy and had all the Oakland stuff and the past stuff. And Feige goes, oh, that's a lot better than what I've got. And they went with it and that they had always planned for Circus to be a bigger deal. But once Coogler gave a more compelling vision, they let him be killed off and, you know, be a minor part because they found something better than what they had planned in the first place. Yeah, that totally, I mean, that totally makes sense, especially because, you know, I think of Killmonger as more of a sequel villain than a first movie villain for Black Panther. You know, Claw's usually the villain that 
Black Panther has to defeat in order to come into his own. Um, and Killmonger is the threat that he can't beat, and he has to learn how to cope with defeat. Um, the fact that they mashed those things together in one movie made for a better movie, but it does leave open questions as to where Black, Black Panther is going to go next. I think we all love this a lot. Is there um, is there one negative? Is there any nitpick, nitpicks for you of things that you did not like out of this movie? Yes. Uh, my biggest nitpick, uh, I mentioned it a little bit um, right after I saw the movie for the first time. And, you know, it's not as bad as when I first saw it, but I still it still stands out as sort of my initial nitpick. Um, a little bit with the fight choreography, um, I thought that some of the score choices during the fights were not, um, kind of took me out of the movie. I, I, we got, Randy mentioned having seen Creed, and, you know, Creed's one of my favorite movies, so I've seen it a bunch of times, and it felt like some of the score was being recycled from the Creed fights. Um, and as much as I love the Creed fights, I'm watching a Black Panther movie, and I don't want to be evoked. I don't, I don't have um, audio uh, hints of Creed fights when I'm supposed to be watching T'Challa fight. Um, but that's, that's my major nitpick. There were times when I found myself sitting there going, is that really his mother? And all of that. It, and it's like the nittiest of nitpicks because mm-hmm. the acting and everything was great. But there were times that I looked at the royal family and I was like, they don't look related. That was just my little thing. Now I'm trying to remember because this may be, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, well, actually, I have access to the internet, so give me a couple of seconds to Google it. Because T'Challa's father is um, did have a second wife, so it's possible that um, they were sticking with the canon where Shuri's mother and Shuri has a different mother than T'Challa does. Um, so, so that would make perfect sense to me, like just from the way everybody looked, because she looked just like her mother. Okay. To me. So, but, yeah, so that might have been what it was. Yeah, it hasn't been. I don't think it's been clarified in the MCU. You're right. It, you know, uh, Raymonda is the stepmother. I think she's actually the third wife of T'Chaka. I can't remember, but she's definitely not T'Challa's mom. But right. I feel like in this movie, they just kind of let it lie that they were all blood related, or, or, or at the very least, just they didn't care about it. You know, like it wasn't something worth mentioning. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, and even in the comics, I mean, he's she basically raised him. Yeah. Um, you know, she was the mother that he knew after his father. I mean, you know, in the comics, his father dies when he's a child, not you know the way that it happens in the in the, in the movie. Um, so he doesn't have that same kind of you know across the spiritual plane. Um, I just lost you talking to that father thing. He has the you know I grew into the man that you know I wish you could see deal with his father you know which is much different dynamic but um yeah i mean like you said they didn't really establish it one way or the other and i'm i guess i'm fine with it either way because you know angela bassett's an amazing actress and she conveyed motherly love (laughs) yeah oh yeah yeah i think uh my frustration with it um so the third act i liked all the stuff at the surface but the Uh stuff in the mine I just really did not enjoy for me. It was, yeah. um, it was almost like DC. Like, I hate to say this, but it was like man of steel, almost like these two CGI figures punching each other really, really hard. And I don't love that. Like, it's not that exciting to me. It's not that interesting. Um, I've been a little frustrated. I mean, I think it's okay, but they, um, they made this decision to make Shuri the genius of the family. And in doing so, they've kind of pulled back on the intelligence, I think, of Black Panther. Not that he's a dumb character by any means, but he, you know, in, in the comics, he's, you know, a top 10 scientific mind in the world or whatever. Well, I think we're meant to believe, because, you know, they, they mentioned a couple times that he had his own designs. I mean, some of the things in the lab were his designs. And that she was just kind of scoffing at how much better her own designs were. So I think we're meant to to put them both at that level. But I agree, they didn't have as many opportunities to showcase his scientific mind um, the way that I would have liked. I agree. 
Um, but to say one point about that, the mind fight, I, I felt similarly, but I also felt that what had, what happened for me is that the focus of the fight shifted to the battle. You know, the battlefield fight was much more compelling than what was happening on the tracks, especially because we kind of knew that, you know, T'Challa's going to win at some point. <laughs> um, it wasn't, you know, it was just a matter of, all right, well, how's that going to play out um, versus really... Um, this was something that I was talking to with some friends. I was really kind of relieved in a weird way that we didn't get battlefield carnage, um, even though it meant that I was had to suspend my disbelief super far for what was happening visually in front of me, that, you know, people weren't just dying all around us. You know, I was much more staked in, in not wanting these characters that I really cared about to start murdering each other on the battlefield. Yeah. I, I think the other thing I really wanted was in the comics, Black Panther often functions almost like Batman, that he's this master tactician that sees things coming ahead. And often in the com I mean, I'm thinking back to I think the priest run and some of the Akibe stuff where like he sees the coup coming and he almost kind of allows it to happen because he has a master plan for the end of it. And I think I'd kind of wanted him to have predicted Killmonger a little bit or to have outsmarted Killmonger to have this moment where Killmonger realized that in all of his rage and his anger that he had been duped by a tech, you know, a tactically superior Black Panther. And we never right. got anything like that. Instead, we just got kind of a cool move that led to him getting stabbed, you know? And I, I just, that's something I missed and I would have liked to see based on the comic character that it's just not the way they went, but um, it would have, it's just something yeah. I would have preferred. Yeah, I thought about that too. I was just kind of like, all right, well, he just had one cool move. That's, that's cool, I suppose. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, I I had some conversations with Rhiannon about the about how I feel about the priest run and how making him kind of in, infallible the way Batman is infallible was cool for the time, but maybe has outlived its usefulness that having him have that in his back pocket, have that skill in his back pocket, but maybe not constantly, you know, pull the, the Batman move of, well, I'm Batman, I'm always three steps ahead of everyone you know, has gotten tired and by giving him this highly competent uh, group of support players that are every bit as Black Panthery as he is, <laughs> um, you know, that, that actually makes Wakanda feel fresher and make us want to care about these people and their stories more, especially Shuri, I think. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to to end up thinking that zero sum, that just because Shuri is super smart, that it means that T'Challa is not. You know, I do hope they'll have the opportunity to show that they're both uh, genius level intellect. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, you point out what I think is kind of an interesting dynamic is it, it, it's, it's interesting to make a movie in which you're trying to talk about... Um, you know, values of sort of equality and the power of, uh, I mean, even some of the more feminist kind of themes in this movie of how these women are just as strong as he is. But at the same time, you have a king, which is a somewhat sort of patriarchal system, you know, like mm -hmm. how to talk right. about those things in the setting of a monarchy is a fascinating challenge. And it seems like they did bring him maybe down a little bit so he didn't just float above these other characters, you know? Right. I mean, I thought Cooler walked that tightrope well about showing that he was still uh, regal and he was still worth a worthwhile king, but he wasn't, um, you know, like you said, floating above um, and on a high uh, and kind of diminishing everyone by virtue of that. Do you guys have anything else you wanted to talk about with the movie before we wrap up this review? Wait, wait, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so, wait, I'll say, I'll say one more thing because it needs, I, I apologize. I'll say one more thing because it needs to be said. Nakia, Lupita Nyong'o, will you marry me? <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm sure she listens um, to this podcast, so that'll that'll probably be effective. I'll think so. No, I just meant I I more meant that we we didn't t- talk nearly enough about yeah. how great Nikita was, and you know it needed to be said. I you know I I made a joke about how she's the Black Widow that we really need, <laughs> um, yeah. because. I, I want to know about all her spy adventures now. I want to know why, um, you know, she she can go everywhere and do anything. And, um, you know, I want to see further, further cool stuff before she ends up, you know, potentially as a queen. Yeah, I think the other little things I wanted to add in quickly, um, I love the score. There was so much stuff about Kendrick Lamar and his soundtrack coming in, which was excellent. Mm-hmm. But... I didn't expect and I never thought that they were also hiring someone to write a theatrical orchestral score. And so when that came in, I was like, oh, well, this is great. Like nobody's talked about this because they're so focused on the Lamar stuff. And I thought that was it was good and it was unique. And so many Marvel movies don't have a score that's unique that I loved that that was there in addition to the sort of soundtrack songs. That's true. I agree. I also liked um, what they did with Everett Ross. I think they kept some of his humor without making him as bumbling as he could be at other times. So I felt like they, they did pretty well with him. See, I attribute I attribute all of that to Martin Freeman because I hate Everett Ross. hate him a lot. <laughs> and, you know, Martin Freeman played him so well, played him as, you know, he had a good heart, but he wasn't... Um, you know, I don't think he played him as a buffoon at all, um, but I think he was perfectly willing to kind of play the the foil on these on the jokes and be the butt of the jokes at every turn, but do it with dignity. Yeah, and there was still a fish out of water element. Like they distilled the Ross part right. that works is wow, this is a world I don't understand, and I'm um and i have the maturity to understand i don't understand this world and i'm not going to try to dictate to these people how they're supposed to run their lives so the fish out of water part they kept without right. the bumbling stupidity stuff but he was still enough of in occupying his character as a cia agent with uh wisdom to impart that he wouldn't just be completely pushed out of the frame uh, let me ask one more question as, as we wrap it up. What was the experience in the theater like for you guys or the experiences? Uh, was it an enjoyable crowd? Did you feel like there was a different energy when you went into these screenings? Oh, yeah. This was this was a combination of, of Star Wars and a family reunion and a, um, a cultural experience. I mean, I think I didn't realize... Uh, how important the fact that it was coming out in Black History Month was for people's kind of energy in terms of, um, you know, what they brought to the theater and their willingness to kind of go all in on embracing, you know, Africanness and embracing the, um, the idea of Black Panther as a cultural event. Um, you know, until I went to a couple of screenings and the way that people who were perfect strangers just looked at each other like, you know, this is, this is home, this is... The, a, a moment for us um it was it was great any thoughts on that rihanna and what it was like for you in the, in the movie theater i mean i saw it at one of the the early screenings the fan event early screening thing so um i mean there was definitely a lot of anticipation because you have people lined out on the street for an hour before the movie and you know you have um a crowd that not only you know they didn't just decide to go out on friday night they we're interested enough to enter a contest and be there and go and be there earlier and stuff. Um, and I always find those crowds to be far more enthusiastic than any average movie crowd. Um, but like I said, it's still maybe a quarter to a third of the people left before the after credit scenes. Would you say that, Mike? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, maybe a third. I, I mean, because I think a third is what I estimated. Yeah. But I, you know, in beforehand, but I think it was maybe around 20%. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, which normally when you're going to something, I mean, compared to, I guess, the Doctor Strange screening, I feel like everybody just sat in their seats because everybody that was there 
was there because they were a Marvel fan and hanging out to see. But Rihanna, you know, remember, we got a lot of spontaneous applause in, in the movie. Like yes. when, when, char- when characters popped up on the screen, um, they didn't, it, it was like they didn't even know who the characters were. They just didn't care. They were clapping at the actors. When the credits, I mean, this happened every time I've, I've been, when, when they go actor by actor in the closing credits, they're getting ovations um, yeah. for every, you know, for for everybody, and I don't, I don't really remember any of that in any other movie, any no. other Marvel movie. No. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was far more energy. I would say that the energy was similar to when I saw Wonder Woman on opening night. Okay. You know, because I remember when I went to Wonder Woman, there was a girl sitting behind me that was just like, I just cannot wait. I am so excited for this movie. I can't believe this movie is actually here. I can't, you know, and, 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 you know, I just sort of felt a lot of that at, at, you know, when we went in. Um, So, yeah, it definitely was a different energy. Yeah, I know at my screening, a lot of folks um, were dressed up in like traditional African clothing and, you know, were clearly kind of making an event of it. And it was just, it was just fun. Like that was just an interesting, exciting, different element than just going to a plain old movie. Um, And so that was cool. Um, I definitely did notice the lines that got the most response in our showing were the ones that, that cut on some of the sort of more racial political edge. Like um, when Michael B. Jordan talks about... (laughs) How did, how did your ancestors get this artifact? Like there was like a, oh, you know, like all through the theater. And then um, when Shuri teases about the colonizers coming after her, I think that was the biggest laugh of the night too. Oh, yes. So. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think I think Shuri, Shuri probably got uh, two out of the five top laugh lines. Um, you know, it was that one and the what are those lines. Um and then, of course, Mbaku had two really good lines. But, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the colonizer thing is going to stick with us for a while, I think. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that wraps um, our conversation about Black Panther. All right. Uh, we're going to go through our mailbag here just to see a little bit of the comments uh, from the good folks um, on the Internet. Uh, a couple of comments from last week's show. Uh, As Guardian of the Galaxy was just saying that uh, they felt kind of like we did about the Netflix stuff. That um, at this point they just they don't get butterflies anymore when they see a trailer. They said you know up till Luke Cage they kind of felt that way. I'm like oh this is the next one coming, and because of the quality kind of falling off, they just don't get that excited uh, anymore. Um, they also mentioned. Uh, that Punisher was not very interesting to them. It does seem that where Punisher was good for a lot of people, the people who didn't like it really just didn't like it. So, hmm. um, Valar X Magulus, uh, I never know exactly the tone of this commenter, uh, said, we need to talk about Venom. All the talk about those theories and speculations, the trailer did its job wonderfully. So I think they're trying to say that the ambiguity of the trailer kind of worked and then it made us hypothesize and think and talk so much about what the movie might be. Do you buy that theory, Rhiannon? If people were still talking about it this week, I would. But they're not. But they're Well, I mean, <laughs> and granted, Black Panther is going to take up all conversation right now, but I just... I would only buy that if I still wanted to talk about it later. And it's just not... To be fair, I did hear one or two people in the screening of Black Panther I went to. Uh, we got the Venom trailer. And one or two people around me said, Oh, yeah, I think I want to see that. That looks interesting. And I was like, Really? <laughs> I was shocked. <laughs> Apparently, the trailer worked for somebody. Okay. Uh, didn't work for Love Waffle. It does seem like the trailer is doing to Venom what that EW picture did to Inhumans. The movie was already riding a wave of bad sentiment, so this might have been Sony's only chance to convince people Venom is something they should be excited for, and they blew it. (laughs) So that was his (laughs) succinct feelings on that. Um, uh, Iguard was just saying that if Netflix wants to keep going forward, 
Um, they need to go ahead and forego their roots of being grounded um, and uh, start going into some new things. Um, I'm not sure exactly how grounded Netflix really... I mean, we talk about that, but I mean, they were bringing people back from the dead in season two, right? When Nobu came back. Mm-hmm. I, I actually heard somebody talk about the Jessica Jones trailer and they're like, well, obviously they're not going to bring Kilgrave back because Netflix is not that kind of world. And I'm like, how many people have been brought back from the dead on the Netflix shows? At least two or three at this point, you know? So I always find that kind of interesting. The, the perception versus the reality of how supernatural or not Netflix is. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Um, Devil Dinosaur had a great idea for a um, future podcast, basically just saying what's going on with Fox. They keep greenlighting, green, um, giving the green light to weird movies like a Shadowcat movie with TJ Miller is the latest thing that's been coming around. <laughs> um, and it's just like, what are they doing? Are they just are they wonder like are they just making plans in case the deal fails, or are they hoping that Feige will pick these up and run with them? Um, he said it could be a good topic to talk about on the podcast, and I agree. I, I think the short version for me is, <clears throat> I think that some of these people are hoping that Fox, that some of the execs at Fox are like, sure, whatever, we're going to be out of a job in a year. And so they're kind of greenlighting stuff and giving money away for projects that they're not sure about, but maybe that's just cynical. Do you have any thoughts on this, Rhiannon, about why we're getting so much random stuff out of Fox as this deal comes closer? I I mean, I guess they have to proceed as if the deal isn't happening and keep working on, you know, whatever, you know, get it, getting things completed. I don't know. No, I don't really have strong thoughts. I just keep ignoring it and like, okay, so they're moving forward with things. That doesn't mean they'll ever actually become movies. Yeah. As long as Gambit stays dead, I'll be happy. I do not want to see a Gambit movie. I just... Because <laughs> the problem is I'm going to have to see it. Like, even with the DC stuff that I hate, I feel like I have to see it. And I don't want to have to see a Gambit movie. <laughs> it's just... I have no interest. Yeah. Uh, Anthony Wickheiser um, said his biggest problem with Venom is that there have been a lot of good or enjoyable storylines, but there's only one great Venom storyline. And that is the storyline of how the symbiote got put on Peter Parker and then got put on Venom. And that's the one story he knows that he can't get out of this movie. So why would you tell a Venom? Why would you do a Venom movie if you have no access to the one storyline you really want? So Uh, Chris um, had several comments on some different things. Um uh, but Hellcat, he actually is a Hellcat fan, so he helped fill us in a little bit on the character. He said, I'm a big Patsy fan of the comics. Yes, Caleb, you're sort of right that she's a lighter character now, especially in her last ongoing series. Patsy was actually created in the 40s as a teen rom-com comic book character, which is why I love the Hannah Montana type background in Jessica Jones. Uh, Marvel decided to bring her back into the fold decades later and gave her a suit worn by another hero called the Cat from years before her reintroduction. She would end up joining the Defenders as a pretty consistent member for some time. She also married the son of Satan, Damien Hellstorm, uh, which I did not know, which led her to commit suicide. At some point, I can't recall if prior to death or because of her rebirth, she gained supernatural powers. Uh, Also, I could totally see Trish going the costume route because she would have to hide her identity concerning she's well known and she is clearly more inclined to really lean into the superhero tropes. So I thought that was all pretty good. That's data I didn't have about that character. Um, And I did think it's a really good point about um, that she would need to hide her identity more than some of the other characters would, you know? Yeah. All right. Um, I think... That does it for our episode. So, uh, Rana, did you have anything else that you wanted to talk about before we wrap up? No, I feel like this week my brain has been on nothing but Black Panther. So, it's good to stop Yeah, in. it's been one of those movies where I wake up in the morning and I'm like, Black Panther? Black Panther? Oh, I have other things in life to think about. I, you know, like, I'm thinking about it when I wake up from, you know, just processing, I guess, while I sleep. So, <laughs> Yes. 
Thank you for listening to the podcast. You can interact with us a lot of ways. Send us messages on Twitter via at Marvel News Desk. You can also communicate with us via SoundCloud or the MCU Exchange posts each week. If you want to support the show, give us a dollar a month over at Patreon or more. You can sign up for that at MarvelNewsDesk.com. Uh, also, uh, that will get you access to our special MCU film ranking episode available only to our Patreon supporters. Uh, you can help the show be more visible to others if you leave a five-star review on iTunes. The number one thing you can do, however, and do each week is that you tell your friends. Uh, we want to thank Tim Cox for our logo. You can find him on Instagram at Tim V. Cox. And thanks to Alvin for our theme music. You can find uh, his music at The Skull School across a whole bunch of social media platforms. Uh, thanks for listening to the podcast again this week, and we'll see you later, guys. Bye. <laughs>